Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Jordan, how are you doing this morning? Uh, doing very well. Really excited to chat with you today. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So my very quick bio, I grew up in Los Angeles, a uh, nice Jewish kid, kind of expected since childhood that I would uh, go you know, be a doctor. Um, I went off to college. Uh, I went to Princeton University. And when I graduated, I joined the United States Marine Corps. Um, I did five years as an infantry officer, uh, two tours overseas, and uh, decided to get out around 2014. Um, at that point, I had the GI Bill, so I figured I would use it for everything it was worth. And uh, I went to law school because I wanted to dive into kind of great ideas about the American Constitution, and uh, also went to business school, thinking that I would have a career um, uh, in the private sector. And through a series of sort of serendipitous events, uh, ended up connecting with uh, Eric Schmidt, the former Google CEO, and went to go work for him for uh, five years, helping him stand up his new uh, philanthropic organization, Schmidt Futures. So um, had a, an amazing experience there. Got some real insight into uh, some of the challenges we face on the technology side um, and the national security side, and uh, used that to launch what I'm now doing, which is uh, creating this new fund called America's Frontier Fund. It's a nonprofit deep tech investment fund focused on ensuring the United States wins the next uh, great power competition against China, uh, which is focused on technology. And throughout that process, while I was doing that, I, I uh, wrote a book with my best friend called Union. Uh, it, it's a, a road trip narrative, very similar to kind of Jack Kerouac on the road. Uh, and it explores why we are so polarized today and what actually unites us, despite the you know, default narrative that, that we are so divided. Um, so that, that's my quick background. I think some of the big ideas that I'm, I'm really passionate about right now, um, uh, which kind of play into both my book and my current work, uh, the first is this question of, you know, in this next century, this next great power competition, um, you know, it's very clear today that China invests for power and the U.S. invests for profit. And how does that lead to very different outcomes for our economies? And what does it say for our long-term strength as countries um, and how that competition will play out? And I think the U.S. has some amazing advantages, but it also puts us at some disadvantage relative to uh, a country like China that can top-down direct where it wants technology to develop. And then on the other side, uh, I've always loved uh, theories about U.S. constitutional law and what it is that that really unites us and binds us back to this founding moment, uh, but also makes it a um, you know ongoing democratic experiment going forward that we all have this amazing opportunity to participate in and, and shape going forward. I love that. I love that. Um, I want to get started. There's so much I want to dig into, but I want to get started with uh, one of the first things you mentioned. You know, after you left Princeton, this elite institution, you went into the Marine Corps. Uh, 
And recently I was listening to a general, he was talking about this and he's like, this doesn't happen anymore. You know what I mean? Like students like from elite colleges very rarely go into the military. Like it, it's declined immensely. What's your sense of, of why that is? Is it just because the military is kind of a red tribe institution? And so like, it's kind of taboo to come out of this you know core left wing institution, maybe get brainwashed a little bit. I don't know. I don't know what happens, but you know, like something happens and then suddenly uh, you never want to go work in the military. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, I had a sort of unique experience. As I said at the beginning, I, I always thought I was going to be a doctor, and I even applied to medical school. And I was going through college in um, 05 through 09, which was sort of the heart of the surge in Iraq. And gotcha. there was something interesting where you had this generation of leaders go overseas, do incredible things, and they all joined before 9-11 or you know, right after 9-11. Right. And they came home, they wrote books about it, and they inspired the next set of us. And so, you know, growing up, I read you know, Nate Fix, One Bullet Away, and Rye Barcott, and Elliot Ackerman, and, you know, these incredible uh, leaders who um, I wanted to be like them. I aspired to, to to their sort of integrity and heroism and courage, and I wasn't unique there. So when I graduated college, I think there were 10 of us who who joined the military from, from my Princeton class, which was actually a fairly high number, um, you know, relative to the years before, where it was maybe one or two. And so I think there was this group... Um, who were graduating around 07 to you know 14 that were very inspired by by that wave. And so in my officer candidate school class of 40 um, infantry, you know, 40 officers, uh, I'd say 10 of the 40 were from you know very elite Ivy League schools who all just were inspired uh, in some way or another. And they actually were fairly liberal. Uh, you know, my bunkmate uh, at OCS, he's now running for office as a Democratic candidate for you know for for elected office. And um, and so it, it was much more diverse than, than I think people expect. Um, and again, I, there was that sort of amazing moment where we were all inspired by the group ahead of us uh, to go serve. Um, and I think that that that's still there today. You know, maybe the urgency has gone down a bit, just given uh, you know we, we aren't in active wars anymore. Um, and so you know, when I step back and say, okay, what what is happening? Um, I, I think there are two facts that are really important. One is. Uh, we no longer have a draft. Uh, you know, we, we have an all-volunteer army, uh, all-volunteer military. Um, it means we actually don't need all that many people. And so the the slice of America that goes into the military, it's it's just very small, period. And we don't want that many people because it, it's a highly specialized, highly elite armed forces. So that's the first fact. And I think the second fact is that shift to an all-volunteer military happened, you know, at a moment when all these new sort of power law type career options emerged. And so, you know, in the 1980s, you had the rise of Wall Street and, you know, in the 90s, you had the rise of the internet. And so when you contrast the sort of the, you know, the more standard career of a military officer's life with this like uh, potential to, you know, create vast fortunes or power um, on the private side, you know, I think you got this flood of, you know, top graduates heading into those careers and uh, overlooking the military as, as an option. And, you know, I, I think that's not unique to the military. I think it's true across you know public service and a variety of other professions. Uh, but that that to me would account for most of it. I found the officer corps to be highly diverse. Uh, you know, it might have even uh, shift like slanted a little bit left, um, while the uh, enlisted corps maybe sort of slanted right. Um, but that that's sort of my my take on it. That's great. That's great. Well, uh, 
you mentioned something very interesting there. This, I think this is a great segue. Uh, you mentioned the rise of power law careers, perhaps around knowledge work, the internet, things like that, and, and driving you know people into uh, kind of a narrow set of career options at the elite level. Because you know you could go out, you can make like a huge amount of money in finance, or you can use technology to leverage that to make you know just much larger sums of money than you traditionally could. There's a great book uh, coming apart that kind of describes kind of this this. this forking of you know class in america especially among american whites um which happened right around the same time um how much do you think this rise of you know these kind of power law careers has fed into political polarization and um it used to be there's a great there's a great anecdote i've heard that you know um maytag this great american company based in illinois uh in the 60s, the CEO lived in the same town with like uh, a couple of doctors, a couple of lawyers, the plumber, you know, and like just some, some other guy was there. Like, you know, just like everyday people, he would live in the same town with the factory. Now he lives in a big city and he takes his private jet in. And this is like this completely, it's this completely different thing, right? It's just like much more, uh, much more separated from each other. Do you think um, this rise of these rise of power oil careers has contributed to political uh, polarization in some sense? Yes, I, I certainly do. I, I think it's it's one of multiple factors, but it, it, it's an important one. And I think over the last 20, 30 years, there was there was a dominant um, liberal internationalist worldview that essentially said, you know, globalization is is good. Um, it's good to be a citizen of the world, and we we should kind of adopt that view. And it, you know, it fit the moment for America because we were the unipower the unipolar power, um, and what was good for the world we thought was good for us, and vice versa. And uh, I think. I think it's turned out that that's just not true, and I think it ended up benefiting, um, you know, the 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 top uh, echelon of American society um, infinitely more. And everybody else was actually fairly hurt by it. And I think you could point to a number of areas where that's true. You know, the offshoring of American manufacturing and the loss of jobs, which is now in turn reducing innovation in a variety of areas. As you know, our manufacturing base for deep tech is now overseas. Uh, you know, loss of middle class uh, income. Uh, that sort of enabled this uh, vibrant social fabric that we once had with communities. Um, you know, you can kind of go down the list, but I, I think it's it's a major factor. I think both globalization and technology operate on a power law, and so the convergence of those two forces over the last thirty years created this you know super maelstrom that that really did eviscerate uh, social capital across the United States and have significant consequence. And uh, I think one thing that'll be interesting is as Globalization seems to be hitting a wall and maybe even receding, um, and we're coming to the end of this next, you know, the last wave of technology, kind of based on semiconductors and Moore's law. Um, whether whether we actually will see some some uh, reformation of American social capital, I think that to me is one of the more interesting X factors over the next couple of decades. I love that. I love that, um, Jordan. You wrote a really excellent book that you mentioned on, you know, uh, you know taking this journey with your friend across the country in, in several different like uh, spurts. It wasn't, it wasn't all at once, uh, but I really love the book. Um, it, and, and I'm curious, there's a lot of reflections uh, around political polarization. Um, you know, you're more conservative. He's more, he was more liberal and, and how you could kind of come together throughout those kind of differences uh, has writing the book and talking to all these you know, people from all different walks of life made you uh, more optimistic or more pessimistic about the state of political polarization in the U S. I think it did both, and uh, I know that that's that's not a satisfying answer. But um, you know, on the one hand, our experience out on the road was that Americans are far less divided than than it seems. You know, when you can sit down over a meal and break bread with someone, uh, you find that you have 
all these values in common. And these, these are values that are shaped by our experience as Americans. I think the, the, you know, the founding ideals all the way through to today kind of creates this, um, you know, implicit bond and shared, uh, uh, civic religion among Amer- among Americans that you just find over and over again uh, in town across America, and when you can get to that point of sitting down over a meal, you, you can you can find those those uh, commonalities. And I think it's also true on policy. I think we're we're not as far apart on policy as as it might seem. And so that gave me a lot of optimism that going forward, you know, we just heard over and over from Americans that they're sick of being divided. They don't want to be put into these camps anymore, and they want to transcend it. Um, and so that's on the one hand. And then on the other, it's, it's hard to look at what's going on with social media and our political system and not see that it, it is deliberately pushing us into those camps. And it's doing everything it can to, to activate our outrage buttons and, and you know, constantly just trigger us into seeing the other side as the enemy. Our politics thrives on it. Our social media and media companies thrive on it. And that sort of um, uh, systemic kind of uh, uh, cleavage is is. It's very destructive, and you know you could just see it over and over and over again over the last five years. How these these issues were manufactured; they were designed to to kind of push us into camps. And you know, even when people know that that's happening, they can't help themselves from falling into it. I think Chris and I found that on the road over and over again. You know, we were writing a book about finding common ground, and we still found ourselves fighting on some of these issues, knowing what was happening to us. And and so I think the the challenge for America is one: you know, how do we at a policy or uh, social, societal, and uh, economic level, kind of rejigger these things so that like they aren't uh, by default dividing us. Um, and then second, you know, how do we as individuals and family members and communities uh, learn what's happening? You know, learn to understand our emotions and why something triggered us or not, and to to be able to go a level up and say, okay, uh, I, I, you know, I I I know why I feel this way, but how can I you know, continue to have a good conversation, a good relationship, you know, see the best in the other side and, and not fall prey to this, what I honestly view as sort of a marionette style manipulation. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it does seem to be just kind of quite pernicious. Um, I, I'm curious, as you traveled across the country um, with Chris, what's your sense of how healthy community is? There, there's a great, uh, there's a great scene in the book where you talk about, um, you, you know, you go to a gun range, you take Chris shooting for the first time, uh, and they invite you by, back for, uh, you know, beers and, and brats afterwards. Um, it, it seemed like in this really small town, I think it was in Arizona, there se- seemed to be some real sense of community that still uh, existed. But Americans seem to get lonelier, lonelier every year. Uh, if you look at the percentage of people that has a best someone that they would call their best friend, it's been dropping for the last kind of 30 years. Um, what's your sense of how healthy community is in the U.S.? Is it pretty healthy? Or is it pretty bad off right now? Unfortunately, my personal view is that it's, it's fairly bad off across most of the country. And I think community comes from uh, two things. I think it comes from shared values, shared rituals, um, you know, a, a, a space in, in the community that um, is viewed as somewhat sacred, that you can put aside kind of the, the, the normal um, uh, grind of daily life and, and come together over something special or unique. Uh, you see that, for instance, in religions where you have Shabbat dinner in the Jewish community or or church on Sunday. Um, it's 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 a special space, and again, it doesn't have to be religious. I think you can have it in the town square as well. Um, uh, so that sort of shared value, shared rituals, and then on the other, I think it comes from uh, common struggle. So, what is something that we we have to struggle uh, over together uh, that that builds um, resilience and uh, again stronger bonds. 
And it's, it's hard to identify where those are in American society today. I think there is a broad lack of uh, meaning and purpose uh, that creates that sense of shared values, shared rituals. Um, you know, in, especially in big cities, it's just very hard to find that. And as more and more Americans kind of flow to those bigger cities, I think you, you, you see that, um, uh, that absence of, of meaning. Like where, where does someone find a sense of, of purpose? Uh, you know, I, I, it's not to say it isn't there. And I think for a lot of individuals, they, they do still find it. And so, um, you know, I think my broad generalization is not to say it doesn't exist, but that, but that it is far less than it might have been in the past. And then on the other side, it's, it, you know, we, we haven't seen much um, shared struggle. I think there's a lot of individual struggle across the country. I think a lot of people are suffering. Um, there's, you know, the opioid addict, uh, crisis that is just so dramatic. There's the over-incarceration challenge. There's uh, homelessness and poverty. All these things are, are terrible, but it, it hasn't created a sense of shared str- struggle that we're all in this together. And, you know, I think that that's um, one of the things that uh, Charles Murray talks about in Coming Apart. I think uh, Robert Putnam talks a lot about it as well. Um, and that lack of common struggle, uh, you know, makes it so that we don't feel like we have that much in common anymore. And while I believe, given my experience in the Marines, that, you know, when you put Americans to the test, they rise like no other people I've ever seen. You know, they have this uh, incredible spirit that I think is unique to Americans uh, because of our values, because of the way our country understands itself. And you see it over and over again overseas, but most Americans don't get to experience that. And so I think that that lack of common struggle um, uh, has made it so, you know, we don't find the same trust when when things go bad. You saw this with COVID, unfortunately, that, you know, something that could have been a common struggle ended up becoming an individual struggle for a lot of reasons. Um, and, and you didn't have that sense of trust across the entire country. Um, and, you know, even that is over-dependent because it flows from our political polarization into, you know, what could have been this unifying moment. But that to me is, is um, sort of the defining feature of our social fabric today, that lack of meaning, lack of common struggle has left us in a place of less community, less trust. That's a great transition point. Um, it, it seems to me like our, our last great unifying force was the Soviet Union. And you're working on uh, our next great, uh, uni- what I say is our next great unifying kind of force to push against, which is a, a great power conflict with China. Um, what do you think, uh, you, you know, how, how does the scale look when you look at, uh, it, there seems to be this weird thing where a lot of people I talk to, they're either like, well, China has this crazy demographic problem. The, the pyramid's upside down. They're not going to be able to fund their liabilities. It's not a serious threat. We have nothing to worry about. And then there's people that say uh, they're so far ahead of us. They're so much smarter. There's there's no way we can we can do anything about it. Um, it seems to me like it's probably more in the middle somewhere. Like uh, it's probably going to be closer than that. Uh, but but what what is your sense of of the great power conflict with China? How do we stack up against each other? And, and perhaps what can we do to make America more competitive? It's a great question. Uh, so I agree. We're, we're sort of at the early stages of, the, of this new you know, long-term competition. And some people call it a cold war. Some people call it a hot war. Um, uh, some people call it a techno-economic war. Um, but we, there's no doubt we are now in a very fierce competition with, with China. Um, and I think when these sort of competitions, these bipolar competitions emerge, whether in politics or uh, among nations, I think there's a tendency for a lot of people to kind of either look at our strengths and their weaknesses and say, you know, of course, like our economy is so much better than theirs. We're more innovative. They have these demographic problems. You know, we don't have to worry. Or you look at your own weaknesses and their strengths and say, oh my God, we can't innovate. We're so sclerotic. We, you know, uh, uh, they're racing ahead. They're pouring all this money into innovation. And, and neither of those are accurate. I think both countries have 
incredible strengths and both have a lot of weaknesses. And what that means is that the future is contingent. We don't know how it's going to go, but what does matter is what we do in that competition and how we um, how we focus on our own system and ensure that we have the right uh, you know the right tools, the right innovation, the right uh, talent focused on hard problems. And so, you know, my view going into this is that it's the United States that will either uh, defeat itself or push itself into you know, another century of leadership um, uh, of the global, uh, you know, international order, whatever you want to call it, um, because it, it's up to us. You know, we, we have a lot of problems, we have incredible strengths, and we need to take this moment, recognizing that we actually do face a competitor for the first time in, you know, 50, 60 years, we face a serious competitor. Um, which can act as a foil to us. It reveals some of our weaknesses or areas that that we've underinvested in over the last few decades, and I think that's that's really important. But it also requires a seriousness of addressing those problems. Otherwise, we will certainly wake up in twenty years to a world that we are not the world's best technology leader, um, and China is. And I think that it, it's it's not to say there's anything wrong with the Chinese people. I think the Chinese people are, are incredible. I do think the Chinese uh, Communist Party. Is um, is uh, not the world I want. I, I I don't want a world dominated by them. They they don't have the values I care about. Um, a world like that means more insecurity. It means um, you know countries like Russia being given the green light to invade another country like Ukraine. Um, it means less prosperity for the American people. It means uh, U.S. military that doesn't have the best technology on the battlefield and puts us at significant risk. Um, and so all those things are are reasons why you know I believe uh, the. The country needs to come together around this issue and really take a serious eye towards how we need to drive forward innovation in parts of our economy that just haven't had it over the last few decades. Definitely. Well, you know, Jordan, it, it fills me with some hope that you're working on this problem because it's, uh, it's it's a bear of a problem. Um, I, what what do, what does it look like uh, making sure the U.S. is competitive with China? You know, perhaps uh, on on your front, what you're working on with providing, you know, us with defensive capabilities, it seems quite disturbing to me. There's just so many, uh, I guess, kind of political economy problems with this. Uh, I think about the carriers, you know, you've got these massive high capital cost kind of weapon systems that can be defeated with, you know, DF-21, you know, very cheap, like anti-ship missiles in, in mass. Like there's things like, uh, which I, I don't think people are really thinking about very much. There's a uh, kind of a lack of automated systems, perhaps dri- driven by like the pilot lobby in the Air Force. I don't know what's going on there. Maybe they just, yep. you know, Top Gun probably did not help us at all. Great movie, but <laughs> probably didn't help us on that front. Um, but yeah, like uh, what are you working on in particular? Uh, what big problems there do you see on the defense side that, that need to be buffed up, that can't be buffed up? Well, that was a great point, and I'll, I'll start with your point, which is you know the U.S. has invested so much in these huge military platforms, you know our aircraft carriers, our fighter jet programs, and it's not to say those are wrong. I think it's really important that we have those exquisite platforms that that dominate the battlefield. But if the 20th century was all about scale, you need you know you need carriers that have scale, you need aircraft carrier uh, air, aircrafts that can dominate the airspace. Um, it was all about scale. The 21st century is all about you know, small units, highly empowered with technology that can swarm. And you know, as you said, our aircraft carriers can be taken out by um, either tons of swift boats with explosives attached to them, that's a low-tech approach, or you know, highly enabled drone technologies that can similarly swarm, and they're low-cost and cheap. And so we've plowed a ton of money and um, 
invested heavily in these programs that take decades to, to be completed. And yet the fear is that by the time they're fielded on the battlefield, the other side will have technology that can easily take them out. And so that heavy investment um, you know, might be money being spent uh, in areas that are not going to have the highest ROI for us. And so as we looked at this problem, um, you know, there's, there's been a variety of uh, commissions over the last five years or so that have kind of came to the same conclusion that we're falling behind in foundational technologies, things like microelectronics or artificial intelligence, uh, synthetic biology, the, these technology areas that uh, are a bit upstream from the dual-use application. So rather than focus on, do we have the best aircraft carrier, we should be looking upstream. Do we have the best AI? Because whoever has the best AI will make decisions faster on the battlefield. They'll, they'll have um, you know, much higher competitive advantage in decision-making which then you know, leads to all these downstream consequences. And the same is true with microelectronics. Whoever has the best chips has the best AI, they have the best weapon systems, they have the ability to you know, shut off the world's supply chains to those chips. And so it, it gives all these advantages. And if we look at why the US is falling behind in those areas, I think it, it essentially comes down to this political economy question, which is um, you know, a lot of those areas do not fit the venture model. And yet we've really leaned on the venture model for innovation over the last 20, 30 years. So venture has a 10-year fund duration. It, it's not a requirement. It's, a, it's, it's sort of an evolved custom. And 10-year fund durations mean that it's hard to invest in things that have long durations to maturity. So you know, a, a company that requires maybe 15 years to go from promising scientific idea to you know, a prototype to commercial scale takes longer. And so venture funds will overlook it. They just won't. They won't they won't invest there because it's not quite ready. And you know, if, if we had a well-functioning political economy, we might have easier to access government funding, uh, you know, better grant programs that um, could take higher risk. Um, and we do have a variety of, of government programs, but I think universally it's recognized that those, those are just not that effective. And while there's lots of great people working on fixing them, um, they're just not meeting that challenge today. So in between you know, DARPA, which funds... 20-year kind of breakthrough science R&D, and then the venture capital uh, community, there is this gap in funding. And that, that's what our organization is trying to solve, is to figure out how we can get patient capital, capital that um, is willing to take a longer uh, timeline uh, to see returns. It's not going to um, uh, say we don't want returns. We, we need, at the end of the day, we need bigger returns because the only way to know that something is truly a great technology and truly successful. It's an imperfect measure, but it is profit. You know, it is the fact that it's, it's achieved commercial scale, that it is um, so valuable and creates so much value uh, for the economy that it generates substantial profits, but we think that it needs a longer time horizon. So um, that's the challenge we're trying to solve. Uh, I think there's a related challenge, which is you know, these things just require upfront capital uh, you know, to build a new um, you know, microelectronic uh, startup it requires probably $30 million to get to first prototype. Whereas, you know, for a SaaS company, you could get to $30 million in recurring revenue before you even, uh, you know, have to like really invest in hardware. So, um, so that's, that's the innovation challenge we face. And, um, you know, the reason it matters relative to China is that the Chinese government can top down direct their sovereign funds, their state funds um, to invest heavily into those areas. And they can even tell them not to invest in social media companies and software companies so that talent and capital all shifts into this other area. And so at, at a moment when the US is under-investing, the Chinese might be over-investing in those areas, 
And, and that creates real long-term risk for the United States. It means that on the Chinese side, they're getting the benefit of all these learning cycles. You know, in the same way that Silicon Valley developed over decades, as generations of entrepreneurs kind of tackled startups, some failed, some succeeded, but they just kept learning and growing and innovating. The Chinese are going to be able to do that in these deep tech areas. In the U.S., we're, we're moving too slow. So that, that's the challenge we're trying to solve. Just move faster. Uh, it, it's really fascinating. You mentioned that, that time horizon um, uh, kind of $20 bill you found on the sidewalk because it's very similar to a, a, a previous guest we had on the show, Adam Marblestone's uh, FROs, Focus Research Organizations. It's very much uh, uh, in the same vein of, of recognizing that there's certain, I guess, uh, funding sizes and, and timescale returns that are not served because of kind of poor incentives um, just in, in, in kind of the ether, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's exactly right. And if, if I had to distill the challenge, um, it, it's that we need a new way to finance innovation. I, I think for 70, 80 years, we had this incredible system that that was developed. I think you could give most credit to Vannevar Bush, uh, Vannevar Bush um, in The Endless Frontier. And um, you know this amazing uh, symbiosis between universities, federal government contracting, um, and the entrepreneurial ecosystem led to the sort of innovation model we have. Um, and yet things are different today. I think that model isn't quite working as well as it once once did. And so we need to innovate on how we finance innovation, I think. And Adam Marblestone is tackling that with the FRO concept, um, which I think is brilliant. And we we uh, we got to collaborate with him when I was at um, Schmidt Futures. And uh, there are other people in the ecosystem trying similar models. And I think what we're doing with America's Frontier Fund is just one more of those uh, models to try to innovate on how we finance innovation. And our model is, is a bit more commercial focused than Adam's. Adam is uh, looking at how you can use new structures like a nonprofit, but organized like a startup to achieve a breakthrough in basic research. And I think what we're looking at is how you can use a nonprofit to raise patient capital um, that can take a longer time horizon uh, to invest in the things that come out of basic research. So you know, to ensure that whatever breakthroughs happen can still get to commercial scale. Um, that, that's, that's where I would sort of put those, but I find it to be a very exciting time as people are thinking very creatively about, you know, how do we use the tools we have to accelerate or, you know, uh, rethink how we do innovation. That's great. That's great. Are, are there any areas, uh, you see that the U S is kind of dragging behind in, in terms of innovation or just like, uh, I guess, pure kind of onshore infrastructure, you know, one thing I, I always go, go back to is my brother. He used to work in a, he was a machine tooling machine shop. And, you know, he's working on uh, chaff for uh, the F-16. But it's like the one shop in the United States. And it's like down the road for me in this like little podunk town. And there's like, you know, three guys. Like, there's probably two people that know how to do it. And they're like teaching my brother. Mm-hmm. You're like, wow, like if these people had a heart attack, you know, we would really be in trouble as a country. You know, that's how close it is. So is it like, are there like pure, like on the ground tooling problems we have? Is it like more on like the frontier, like, uh, I guess, hard tech, like technical developments? Um, or, or is it like all of these things all at once? I think, I think it's all of these things all at once. And I, I think in, in, in some way we've had the luxury over the last 40 years of just sort of saying like, well, the American innovation base is the best in the world. And it like, you know, talent will naturally just flow to the areas of highest opportunity and value. And um, I, I, I just don't think that's actually quite true. And, you know, I'm, I'm a conservative. I believe in the free market. I think it, it is the best engine for, for wealth creation and poverty alleviation in the world. But it doesn't um, always clear. You know, the market doesn't always clear. And I, I think what we've found is both that 
there are inefficiencies in the US economy, that means you end up with situations where it's like we only have one person who does this uh, machining process and the entire you know, defense and industrial base is like dependent on this like one you know, node. And if that node goes down, we, we actually face severe supply chain risk. Um, so I think you have that problem. And then uh, you know, on, the, on the other side, you have market distortion. Uh, you have a Chinese economy that is willing to flood or subsidize its own sector with capital um, so that it outperforms ours. And so it means we have uh, certain deserts. You know, um, we don't do low-end chip manufacturing in the U.S. because it's so much cheaper uh, overseas. And that creates long-term challenges for the economy. Um, and so you know, I, I think you have these inefficiencies that have emerged. Um, as we think about going forward, what do we need to do to solve this uh, at a policy level? I, I think there are two things that, that are um, important. I think one is we can't dominate all value chains across the world. You know, if we said we want to we dominate the semiconductor value chain from start to finish, so from you know, designing the chips all the way through advanced fabri- fabrication, uh, it's never going to happen. It's, it's a global value chain. It's, it's you know, multiple trillions of dollars, and we just can't do it all. It would, it would take more money than, than we have. Um, and so we have to be very targeted and strategic about what we want to dominate. And as the U.S. government looks to um, pass the CHIPS Act and the bipartisan innovation bills, um, they should be thinking very seriously about where in the value chain is it truly critical for us to dominate and, and have strategic nodes. Um, so I think that's first, is, is for the first time in a long time, being very thoughtful about where we develop technology. And I think the second is having a better understanding at a granular level of those supply chains. So you know, the US government is the biggest buyer in the world of technology, and yet they don't know what the, you know, the couple levels down uh, supply chain is. So um, uh, one of my colleagues was on the Defense Science Board, and, and what she found was that um, you know, you couldn't tell where that one machinist is just based on uh, the existing information the U.S. government has. But we, we should know that. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure the Chinese actually know it, uh, <laughs> but we should know it because it would help that market clear more effectively. You know, uh, you know having such brittle supply chains, having dependencies on these small mom and pop shops uh, for our most advanced equipment is it's not an effective strategy. And so having better information, more data on where those brittle supply chains are can help us um, revitalize those supply chains, create more resiliency, and it can help talent and capital move towards areas of opportunity that at the moment they're not because they just have, they have no visibility there. That's great. That's great. That, this next question, um, it kind of flows through all of your work. So I'm really curious to get your take on it. Um, you know, it, it's a big kind of left, right, uh, I guess, conflict point uh, around defense spending. Uh, the thing I see about defense spending is that the, the problem is, you know, we spend a lot of money on defense in this country, but if we decrease the amount we spend, uh, it's not like you can, there's a lot of special interest and it's very difficult to dislodge these. It'd be nice to just like hand wave that away, but they, they are there um, and, and they're very motivated to keep their kind of special interests like the big, you know, uh, defense contractors, et cetera. And so if you decrease defense spending, you get, you get less innovation and you can't just like reallocate that very easily. So should we just be more biased towards like increasing defense funding, even though we already spend a lot because you can take that new money and reallocate it to places where if it's already committed, it's very difficult to kind of dislodge that. It's a great question. I, I, I think the, the dis- defense spending debate is um, uh, I think it's really focused in the wrong place. I, so, um, you know, the vast majority of the defense budget goes to things that, I would argue, are just not that relevant anymore. 
um, you know, a third of the defense budget alone is spent on on education, healthcare, and um, uh, you know, social services for the military. It's not that that's bad. It, that that's obviously needed when you have uh, you know a standing um, vol- all volunteer army uh, military. Um, so it's very important we do that. But you know, when most people think like, oh, the defense budget's so big, I don't think they account for for that fact. Then there's all this money going to legacy systems. You know, the vast majority of the budget goes to legacy systems. And, um, you know, as we were just talking about, I, I think that money would be much better spent on advanced R&D and trying to get the best upstream technology. Um, and so, you know, I, I think the defense budget debate always kind of comes down to, like, Democrats want it lower and Republicans want it higher. Um, and really, we should be saying, like, where, where should this money be going? You know, we, we want the U.S. to have the best technology. We want to have the most capable military. What is the best way to achieve that? Um, and it, it's it's not necessarily a bigger budget, but it's probably a budget where the priorities are different. And if if you could spend you know hundreds of billions of dollars more a year on advanced R and D for artificial intelligence or commercialization of um, you know semiconductor uh, disruptive technologies, you know we would be in a much better place as a country than we are today. And on the on the on the left side, I think often the desire is well, let's reduce the defense budget so we can increase. Um, you know, various domestic spending programs. And, um, you know, I, I just disagree with that because at the end of the day, the, the thing that will lift up more Americans, create more jobs, create more um, wealth, collective wealth, are breakthroughs in advanced technology. You know, I, I, I very much agree with the endless frontier and, and Vannevar Bush that, that the, the greatest way we can lift all boats is through that innovation. And we should be putting more money there, not less. And as you've seen, um, uh, federal spending towards R and D has just gone down dramatically over the last uh, uh, half century, and continues to do so. Maybe it ticked up a little bit the last few years, but you know it sh- it should be four or five times as much as it, as it is today. And some of that could come from the defense budget, and I think it would actually meet the purpose of having the most uh, capable military and the strongest tr- strategic position for the United States. That's great. Well, I, you, you mentioned the, the the research budget, and I I'm curious. Uh, as best we can tell, it seems like the average scientist is probably two percent as effective as as one was in 1950. Probably due to all kinds of different factors. Um, I, I, I'm curious. Do you think it has gotten harder to find new innovations? Have we picked all the uh, all the low hanging fruit? Now it's just just much more difficult to get up the tree to you know find that next apple. Uh, or is it like uh, kind of a psychological thing where maybe we're not trying as hard, or the money's not going to the right place? Just going to older scientists or something like that, and uh, or and the, and they're all just politicians who are going to get money, and and the weird people all got kicked out on the street or something like that. Like, what do you think is going on there? Uh, it, it's one of those. I, I think it's an overdetermined problem. I, I, I think it's 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 um, kind of all of the above. I, I do think uh, you know there is some of that like. Um, uh, fishing out problem that that we have kind of gotten a lot of the low hanging fruit and the next breakthroughs are you know maybe a little harder. Um, I think it's that you know if if you go back 60, 70 years, the average university president was in his forties. Today it's they're in their seventies. You know I I think it's true across departments and maybe it leads to a more risk averse um, uh, profession. Uh, I think the way grant money is given out probably also has some effect there. It's harder to be a, a, a non consensus thinker today in the academy. So I, I think it's all the above. Um, I, I'm not an expert in this area, so I, I don't, I don't really have any, any smart view on it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, I, I want to do some, some final questions around, uh, you know, the constitution and how we think about the constitution. Uh, 
the Constitution is not just a living document. It's kind of the set of norms we have around it, and, and it can evolve and change. Uh, you know, you've got a legal background. You, you've written a book on political polarization. Um, you know, how should we theorize about how the Constitution actually works? Um, you, you know, like uh, in the Supreme Court, do they just they, they sit together in a quorum and, and they kind of like uh, interpret this and and hand down verdicts to, to the rest of us um you know how impartial are they uh do you think they do a fairly good job a poor job something in between yeah like generally what do you think about kind of the, the state of the constitution at this point yeah well it's it's such a relevant question given what's happening with roe v wade and um you know i i, I think sadly the the supreme court is was sort of the last holdout of a you know hyper politicized america and and now today it's it sort of uh you know over 20 years has has sort of now Fallen prey to the same hyperpolarization forces. Um, you know, I, the reason I, I love the Constitution so much and, and constitutional philosophy um, is it, it's just so rich, and so many brilliant thinkers have um, you know, spent their lives diving into it and coming up with incredible theories over the last uh, two and a half centuries. And um, uh, you know, it pulls from the best of uh, various philosophical traditions and religious traditions and. Um, you know, there's some Talmudic elements to it. it. It's just a fascinating area of study. And the the theory I liked the best was uh, one of my professors, Jack Balkin, what he called living orig- originalism. And what he would argue is that you know, the constitutional moment was a really important moment. You know, the whole, uh, of course, the constitution was written by the framers and they, you know, they wrote rules in there. They wrote principles in there. Um, but what really mattered was not who wrote it. But who ratified it? And uh, the the moment the Constitution was ratified, um, every state had the opportunity to essentially have their own process. And nearly all the states kind of expanded the electorate beyond anything that had ever happened in the history of humanity, so that more people than ever could could vote on the Constitution. And of course, it was imperfect uh, uh, at the time, and um, you know for all the reasons everybody knows today that women can vote and African Americans can vote. But it, it was it was this. Uh, for the time it happened, it was the most democratic moment in history. And with that ratification, the important thing was what did everyone think the Constitution meant? You know, what did it mean to have a right to bear arms? What did it mean to have equality under the law? And while there are certain hard rules in the Constitution, like, you know, you can't be president until you're over 35. Uh, that's not open to interpretation. It's not like, well, 35 then is 65 today. So like, you have to be 65. It's just a hard rule. But there are other things that are principles, and those principles are both timeless and ever-changing. You know, equality under under the law is timeless, but our understanding of it evolves. And what matters is that every generation of Americans wrestles with what that means. What does it mean for us today to have equality under the law when, you know, everybody with a cell phone can can film you doing stuff? And so, like, does due process matter when you could sort of be crucified uh, in the public square over social media and not get your day in court. So like, how do we understand that? Um, and so I, I, I think what I find beautiful is this idea that every generation gets to kind of renew that founding moment because we all debate what it means uh, over these principles. And ones that you know everybody knows, due process, equality under the law, equal opportunity. Um, th- these are things that every generation gets to wrestle with. And in doing so, take part in that constitutional experiment and, pr- and process, um, which I think is beautiful. I think that the challenge today is that um, you know, civic education is not that great anymore. I think very few people kind of um, uh, understand the constitutional structures and and what it means for them to engage over it. And so, um, you know, the one upside of these 
conflagrations over things like Roe v. Wade or others is it gives us the opportunity to talk about this and to to kind of wrestle as a nation with you know our constitutional process and um, and how it should be evolving given dramatic changes to to the nature of society over the last 250 years. But that, that's the theory I love the most. I think it's beautiful. It ties into this idea of covenant that um, you know we're all bound together and uh, the project makes us something more than we were before. You know, it's not just an I, you, it's, it's, a, it's a we. And, and how that forms is, is through that process of, of engagement. So that, that, that's my favorite theory. Um, we wrote about it a bit in the book. So I, you know, I'd actually love to hear, hear your thoughts on that. And, and you know, given the number of people you've talked to and, and what you read in the book, like how, how do you see what's going on with the Constitution and, and how it applies to us today? You know, I, 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 really, I really love that theory. I, I think it's, um, I, I, yeah, I think it's great. The, the one challenge I see is, is just this, this problem. It's like kind of like the Norway problem. It's like uh, America was much smaller then, and it's like kind of easier to get consensus when you just have less people to go talk to, right? Uh, and, and there's less nodes in the network that you have to kind of bring people together. It, it's challenged to scale this up, and I think we've done like all things considered a pretty decent job. But I do, I do really like that, uh, that that theory. Um, and and um, yeah, I, I think it make, makes a lot of sense. It's really cool. Well, so to your point, I, I think one of the um, there's another law professor at UT, uh, Sanford Levinson, who, who argues that for most of our history, we've kind of, we've iterated on those principles. So, you know, what does equality under the law mean? And we, we haven't really iterated on structures. And so maybe given changes to our society, it's time to innovate on the structure a little bit. Like does, you know, does the, you know, the electoral college make sense? Does the, you know, two person Senate, uh, proportional house make sense? And can, can we innovate on some of that? To create a better functioning uh, system, and you know there are structures in the Constitution that allow you to innovate. So um, it's uh, it's a good point you raise. I, I think I think it's 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 worth a lot of deep thought about you know how we account for the size and scale that we're at now relative to a past area, and how social media I think turns local issues into national issues in a way that that's new and and creates uh, difficulties. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, well, uh, one final question for you, Jordan. You know. Long term, do you think uh, we will see kind of political polarization kind of recede or does it just kind of get crazier and crazier? And if you see it receding, you know, what does that path kind of look like? Do you think is it like uh, culminating around some kind of great power conflict with China? Is it something else? I I sort of uh, ascribe to the cycles of American history um, theories where uh, I think we we tend to arrive at, at some consensus, some dominant sort of uh, approach that, that leads to you know, 30, 40 years of, of, of you know, shared understanding and stability, which then begins to you know, unravel a bit. And, and as the world changes, and the economy changes, we then start to like, drive apart. And then you know, something happens that, that creates a new consensus. So if, if you look at like, um, you know, leading up to World War II, uh, you had a very hyperpolarized country. Um, uh, very different views on how to respond, and then coming out of it, you tend you you had a very sort of aligned uh, uh, nation for thirty, you know, maybe twenty years or so. Um, similarly, a uh, lot of social tumult in the sixties and seventies, and then you know, with the Reagan era, you you had sort of a shared view that that big government uh, should come to an end, and we sh- we should have lower taxes, less regulation, pro business environment, and you got the sort of next wave, and you know, even Bill Clinton kind of. Uh, accepted that that sort of dominant view and and governed that way. 
And so I think you have those cycles and I think we're in one of them right now. I think it's going to stay fairly tumultuous for the next five to 10 years as we uh, wrestle with this new environment and what ideas can actually uh, transcend it. And uh, I, I do think at some point we will have um, a new consensus in the country that will uh, inaugurate, you know, hopefully 20 years of, of just great prosperity and, and uh, growth and, and collective uh, uh, you know, purpose for the country. That, that's, that's my hope. Uh, again, I said at the beginning that I, I think all of this is contingent. So it really depends on, on what we do. Really well put. Well, uh, Jordan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find the book and where can people find your work? Oh, thank you. Uh, uh, so Union the Book, is um, uh, it's on Amazon. Uh, my author's name is Chris Haw. He's an uh, amazing writer from Berkeley um, and uh, my best friend. So I, I hope people check it out. It's a, it's a fun, uh, quick, easy read. And uh, they can learn more about America's Frontier Fund at americasfrontier.org uh, and see what we're up to. It's um, it's, uh, it's an unusual fund uh, as a nonprofit, but um, we think it has the potential to really help galvanize uh, more investment and more, more innovation in deep tech. So we're really excited about our new mission there. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Jordan. And just for the audience, I, I really love the book, so I encourage you to check it out. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.